Welcome to the Exvangelical Podcast. I'm your host, Mark West. How many of you have ever been to Vacation Bible School or what we call VBS? Uh, it's kind of a big deal in the South. A lot of churches do it. Uh, it's something that I went to as practically my only church growing up um, outside of some Sunday school when I was very little. Uh, the only church I had for most of my life was the summer vacation Bible school. I wonder how many of you guys had that same experience. Um, you know, as a pastor of Southern Baptist churches, I've, I've done plenty of vacation Bible school as an adult as well. Um, playing various characters and trying to make the whole experience a enjoyable time for the kids and the teachers and just a time to truly honor God. Uh, and this article today talks about my salvation experience at a BBS uh, when I was 11, but it shares the whole sordid journey uh, of faith for me in the early years. Um, if you were saved as a kid... Did you fully understand what you were getting into? Did you know what the whole process meant, or was it just something that you did? Uh, for me, I I didn't get it. I didn't know what faith was and what all this Christianity was. Uh, my life was never changed by any of it because it was, for me, it was all built on shame and superstition. I felt that somehow participating in the ritual would save me, uh, that it would that it would give me this life that I was seeking. Anyway, uh, today I'm reading my post, That's Me in the Corner, My Final Baptism. Uh, hopefully it will bless you. Uh, it stays on my blog at markforlibertas.com or .wordpress.com. You can check it out there. It will also be linked to in the show notes. Uh, but before we get started, let's take a break. Welcome back, Exvangelicals. Let's get started. It happened on a dare. I was 10 or 11 years old at the time and attending a local vacation Bible school. Uh, for those of you uh, unfamiliar with this southern summer tradition, a lot of churches in the South would and still do hosts these week-long events aimed at reaching kids who don't typically come to church. I mean, why not? Parents or guardians have jobs. During the school year, these kids are in school, but during the summer, child care arrangements tend to create additional stress. Enter VBS. Strategic and wise parents could have their kids in a staggering amount of VBS programs in a single summer to mitigate expenditures on babysitters, because every church in town does them. Plus, the kids are usually hanging out with other kids in a safe environment. Win, win, win. On that day, I was sitting all back of the sanctuary. That's where the older kids sat. My buddy for the week hatched the intriguing idea of going forward and responding during the invitation. The invitation is the end of the church service uh, in which those in attendance can respond to the speaker's message for prayer or to seek salvation. We decided it would be fun to go up together. We decided we wanted to see what happens behind the closed door. You know the one. 
It's down near the altar. We've watched kids let into it, but have never seen them leave. Oh, the spooky little mystery that is in childhood lore. So, when the music started, we looked at each other, shared an understanding nod, and went for it. It was a short stroll to the front. When we arrived at the altar, we were met by the preacher and placed on the front pew with nearly a dozen other kids who had also made a similar choice. It felt like we were waiting in line and for a ride at an amusement park, except the music was worse. I mean, really, who uses pianos? Just kidding. But as a kid, I had no appreciation for piano music. Today, jazz piano is one of my favorites. Suddenly, we were herded into a classroom. We made it! We were finally behind that closed door. We could share the story of the goings-on with our other friends. In the small, slightly musty, paneled room, we were all briskly told as a group about the plan of salvation from a, a tiny picture booklet. Next, we were led, again as a group, in a prayer to ask Jesus into our hearts. We were told that if we prayed that prayer and meant it, that we were now saved and wouldn't go to hell when we die. I didn't know what any of that meant. I did know that I meant what I prayed. I mean, if given the choice, how many little kids are going to be like, yep, enroll me in hell? We each received a flyer for the Sunday services inviting us to get baptized on Sunday night. From my experience as a pastor, I realize now that if you fill the baptistry and start the heater on Sunday morning, it takes about that long for the waters to warm enough to avoid inducing hypothermia. My mom, dad, and brother all watched me get the dunk that Sunday night. My folks were so proud. I remember walking out of the church into that humid summer evening with my hair still damp, feeling the warmth and strength of my dad's hand encouragingly patting my shoulders. He expressed how glad he was that this was now taken care of for me. Although I wasn't sure what exactly had been secured in that moment, I found my dad's touch comforting. The ceremony didn't leave me feeling any different. I was still toting around my sharp new satchel of guilt and shame from my incident. Anything that could help me get that off my back was worth a try. But it didn't work. Sports and video games dominated my life. I never read my Bible, prayed, meditated. Nothing of spiritual value. God had no place in my life. As I reached my high school years, I made the acquaintance of several teens who regularly attended a youth group at a local church on Wednesday nights. I valued the time spent with them enough to start showing up at youth group as well. Over the next couple of years, as my friendships grew, my guilt and shame accumulated as well. I was hung up on porn. Otherwise, I was a good teen. The guilt cascaded into my life like a tidal wave after my sexual encounter on prom night. I'll talk about that more next time. Add into this evil equation a summer revival preacher bringing the hellfire and brimstone of looming divine judgment into the fray, and 
There I was, terrified, distraught, hopeless, and dejected. But hoping that maybe this trip down the aisle and dip into the baptistry would do the trick. It didn't. A few months later, I was off to college, toting my guilt and shame along for the next rung of my voyage in life. Fortunately, I met this amazing girl about midway through my first semester, and we've been inseparable. I mention her because our marriage triggered another trip down the aisle and my third submersion. I was terrified again, this time of the commitment that came with marriage, and took a third trip down the aisle. The whole thing was so meaningless. I remember leaving that night thinking I could now live my life however I wanted to because the transaction was complete. I had an extremely transactional view of salvation. Yet, the mystical, spiritual, superstitious, religious rites were not working. Guilt and shame remained. Porn remained. I believed that if I did the right things, example, the right words in a prayer, the right moment in time, the right format of baptism, that God would be required to save my soul and spare me eternal torment in hell. My belief was being shattered, and I truly understood it to mean that God just really wasn't that into me. My ingrained views led me to believe that I had no place in God's will other than fiery, eternal torment. I mean, I had committed the big sins. Homosexual sex, sex before marriage, lust. I was hopelessly headed to damnation, even as a thrice-baptized Christian. So I put my spiritual life on cruise control and ready to chase my dreams. I couldn't deal with the pain that was aroused by the shame and guilt. Fast forward a couple of years into my marriage, all of those emotions piled on my conscience like a sink overloaded with dirty dishes. I knew I wasn't good at being a husband as much as I desired to be. I just couldn't shed my stained existence. I decided to start reading the Bible. It seemed like a good place to start learning how to do this right. I started with the Old Testament and found the first genealogy so boring I jumped to Matthew. The New Testament is supposed to be more exciting, right? Another genealogy? In spite of it all, I made a personal commitment to read a chapter a day. Seven days in, I was stabbed in the heart by Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, with the recognition that I was indeed on the broad path of destruction. It says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. At that moment, I understood Jesus to be describing an eternal destruction. One to which I was inevitably headed because God didn't want someone like me. I now believe Jesus was describing a different destruction, but I'll discuss that another time. For that moment, the passage pointed me further into my need. 
I sensed an overwhelming conviction leading me to several days of prayer, another altar call, and my fourth and my final baptism. My life did indeed begin a transformation at this point. I had a new spiritual life. Everything was different. It had nothing to do with the superstitious words or ceremonies. However, my fear remained. In spite of my efforts, I still saw myself as the sinner in the hands of an angry God, about whom Jonathan Edwards once sermonized. Knowing that reality tripled my anxiety. In the past, I had literally played games with God's grace. I was a master of presumption and mystical intrigue, but at this point, I was ready to get real. Yet, I was still more afraid of hell than I was in love with Jesus. I knew all the facts about forgiveness, mercy, and salvation while struggling to believe the facts could apply in a case like my own. I mean, I was scum. If the body of Christ had an armpit or an anus, I was that disgusting part of the body. My life was a treacherous tiptoe along a narrow cliff. I feared that any bad sin would revoke my status. All I could see was an unreachable heaven above my perch and an all-too-easy-to-attain fiery torment below. I couldn't see grace for the self-condemnation that dominated my life because of my anxiety. We already know part of where that anxiety originated. It's hard to step closer to Christ when you believe that He absolutely wants nothing to do with you. Any misstep was powerful enough to be credited with stealing your salvation and eviscerating your walk with Christ. A judgmental and vengeful God played in my thoughts, leading to sleepless nights, constant worry, being so afraid to even read a text of Scripture that condemned me. I felt beyond God's love. My predicament was hellish, hell on earth, so to speak. I wasn't able to deal with this anxiety until just a few years ago I found peace in relating to Him. That peace didn't come with any sort of ritual or superstition. It came only from seeking Him earnestly in my life. He empowered me to be open Not just my black heart, but my broken mind to Him as well. He has been healing my mind, and I'm so thankful for His work in my life. Now, let's get back to that little orange book. It led me to David Platt in a video that warped my mind. Watching the video was vicious for my faith, although I'm so thankful for it. I was captivated by Platt's conclusions and challenged to my core Had I truly been so wrong on this issue for so many years of ministry? How many times had I preached and invited and yet unwittingly misled so many on the issue of salvation? Could I get a do-over because I kind of really needed one? My years of ministry were soon to be shrouded under a paralyzing cloud of another guilty conscience. That's right. I became a preacher who parroted the same messages that had me stupefied. This video that you see in in my blog post, it, it led to this particular deconstruction in my life. Had I believed and led my own children to believe in a superstitious, magical prayer and spell, what Platt says is true. 
We don't find any language in Scripture about accepting Jesus into our hearts or about a prayer of salvation, yet millions are led to both conclusions from pulpits, including my own. Often they are led there not by a preacher's intention, but just following the logical paths to which those lines of argument lead. I doubt a preacher ever told me those things would save me, yet that is the understanding with which I was left. I was mortified at the thought of how many people I had left with the same improper understanding of salvation that I was combating in my own walk. How many people walked away from a service in which I had spoke confronting similar confusion? Now, I never ever taught that a mystical phrase saved anyone. By the time I began preaching, I believed that salvation was a process, a relationship. Sure, there should be an entry point, but that entry point should never be sold as a one-time end-all transaction. We have to be very careful with our messaging. Uh, We've got to ensure that this level of mistakenness isn't leaving our sanctuaries. I had once believed such, and from my conversations, there are so many others left in the spiritual wreckage brought on by that misunderstanding. I've been deconstructing and renovating my understanding of salvation for almost a decade. I'm afraid we've diminished what salvation is. We've boiled it down to altar calls and baptisms, the things we can count and brag about at conventions. When I hear about how many people got saved, I immediately wonder how many of those saved folks will become actual disciples of Christ. You know, that's what the Great Commandment, or the Great Commission calls us to in Matthew 28, 18-20, to make disciples, not converts. Asking Jesus into our heart isn't going to save us. Reciting the prayer of salvation is equally ineffectual. I know from my own experience just how worthless both superstitious rituals are at transforming a life. In folks like me, these become a barrier to actualizing faith. I'm not everyone, but I'm sure that I'm also not alone. I've witnessed wrecked lives that hold firm to the religious right that they had been saved. Now, before the chorus echoes in the mountains, I do believe that many find genuine faith in the altar call, the prayer of salvation, and asking Jesus into their heart. But I also know that so many find confusion and a seared conscience from the same event. I've been through this process four times. I've been the damaged soul who felt nothing but condemnation in the church. Our teaching on salvation left me vulnerable and alone. I don't want others to face that same confusion. My heart is broken and troubled over the many to whom I've preached that reside in that state As I speak this out, we have good intentions. We truly want people to begin relating to God. We leave so many damaged in believing in a superstitious transaction, never actually entering into a relationship with Christ. Speaking of folks damaged by the good intentions of the church, I'm going to tackle the little Nas X controversy in my next column, Grace and Peace. Let's take a break. Welcome back, Exvangelicals. So, now you've, you've heard it, the, the sordid and twisted and sad story of my quadruple baptism 
and my conversion uh, to the Christian faith. Uh, you know, when I try to talk to people, I ask about their conversion experiences. I'm always curious how many people share a story like mine. Usually I run into someone who can share this one aspect of it or another aspect of it, but very rarely do I find someone whose conversion experience almost fits to the bill mine. I, I don't know very many people who have been baptized four times. Um, actually, honestly, I do not know anyone who has been baptized four times. So if you have and would like to reach out, please do. I, I would love to hear your story. You see, I think that, that we have a danger in how we talk about salvation and how we talk about our life in Christ. Uh, we unfortunately set up a very transactional and, and superstitious, ritualistic understanding of salvation. And I think part of that is because everything we do is driven by a preacher in a pulpit, uh, driven by a church service, a, a particular, what you would call, liturgy uh, aimed at bringing people to the altar. Uh, it's why there is so much time spent focusing on what is sinful, because we need people to come to the altar. We need the numbers, because so much of our faith has become a numbers game. How many baptisms we have, how many members we have, how much we're bringing in every week in offerings, what we can afford to do as a church versus what we can't afford to do as a church. And because of such, we've developed a transactional, superstitious, ritualistic version of the faith that I believe leads to a lot of confusion, a lot of confusion like I had myself. Um, and it's not, I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't believe it's intentional. I don't believe that these churches have the intention of, of creating this misunderstanding. It's just kind of what happens with the way we operate. Um, and unfortunately, I, I believe it creates a, a dangerous misunderstanding of the faith. I think that instead of our faith and the Christian walk being a safe place, being a, a place of hope and a place of refuge, it instead becomes a place of, of condemnation, a place of judgment, a place where we're more focused on making people feel uncomfortable in Christ rather than helping them find the comfort they can only in a Savior like Him. My understanding of it heightened my own spiritual anxiety for so many years because I lived with this constant scale in my mind of the good things I did versus the bad things I did, and I was always trying to make the scale balance out. I was always trying to do more good than I did bad, as though somehow I was still 
claiming grace yet still trying to earn grace at the same time. And I'm afraid that a lot of the way we teach, a lot of the way we approach the gospel, it just creates that mindset unwittingly. It's not something we're trying to create. It's just kind of the natural, logical conclusion that comes from what we're hearing in the pulpits, what we're seeing in our churches. And I think a lot of it is driven by the need to keep people coming back. Because if we do truly solve someone's problem, I think we're afraid that they won't come back. That they'll consider it done. They'll consider themselves good and, and then they won't they won't be back. They'll move on. It's something I've really struggled with a lot more lately. Um, as I've been in this renovation of my faith, as, I've, as I'm transitioning, to use a, a modern word, uh, transitioning from being an evangelical to being an ex-evangelical. For those of you that read the post, what did you think of David Platt's video, the the couple-minute video that, that is inside the post where he talks about how we have created this superstition around asking Jesus into our heart that somehow that's what saves us, that that's what fixes us and makes us whole. And it it doesn't really point to the deep issue, which is we need a relationship. We need real salvation. You know, the emphasis should be on, you know, instead of do you accept Jesus into your heart as your Lord and Savior, it should be are you going to be committed that for as long as you live, you're going to live like Jesus is your King. You're going to live like Jesus is your friend. You're going to live like you trust Him with everything. Because that's really what salvation is. It's coming to a point of trust. It's not being able to understand all the right doctrinal truths about Jesus. It's being able to understand that you can trust Him. You can trust what He did. You can trust what he said. We've got to transition our faith away from this emphasis on the altar call, on this overemphasis on sin. And what I mean by that is so often you hear preachers and all they talk about is, is sin. Laying out that this is sinful or that is sinful and trying to tell people you know, they shouldn't do this or they shouldn't do that. And really, the reality is most of us know what is sinful. Because what is sinful is what's driving us to the church in need of a remedy. And unfortunately, we spend 90% of a sermon berating sin, 10 of it, calling people to a Savior, and none of it telling them how to live like Jesus is their King. Because the 
the walk that Christian that that Christ calls us to is not a walk to try to pick out sin and and point out sin, but it's just a walk to abide in a relationship with Him, to dwell in Him, to be filled with His Holy Spirit, to have the Holy Spirit produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control in our lives. You see, if we are truly dwelling in the Spirit, our life won't be focused on sin. It'll be focused on love, and it'll be focused on loving our neighbors, loving our enemies, loving our God. That's the great remedy for sin. That's the great remedy for selfishness. And yet we don't talk about that. We stay focused on telling people just how bad and unworthy they are. I'm here to tell you today, you're worthy. Oh, I'm sure some of you are screaming, oh, you heretic, how can you do that? I do that because that's what the Bible tells me. The Bible tells me that we were worthy enough to God that He sent His only Son to save us. If we weren't worthy, He would never have done it. He would never have tried to save our souls. He would never try to put His Holy Spirit, which is Himself, inside of us. He would never try to dwell in us if He didn't see us as worthy of His dwelling. He sees us worthy of such an extravagant price. He sees you as worthy of such an extravagant price. Will you take Him up on the offer? Will you let Him into your life? Will you bask in His love, in His forgiveness, in His grace, in His truth, in His way? Because He's shown us how to do this. All we have to do is look at Christ's life and we see what God on earth looks like. And He's given us His Holy Spirit to help us do it. He's calling us to Him. Are we listening? Well, I thank you guys for tuning in this this episode. I hope you'll check out my blog that I mentioned earlier. Um, Mark for Libertas dot wordpress.com and that is the number four not the word four uh, you can find my book what he said living the sermon on the mount transforming american culture on mark west author.com you can find me on twitter and instagram at at mark for libertas that is the number four i'm also on twitter as exvangelical two uh, that's the number two so i uh, just uh if you're trying to find me in other places that's where you can find me uh for now, thank you so much for tuning in. Grace and peace.